This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So as the weather warms up, we're outside gardening or doing yard work. There are so many opportunities for skin issues, right? And for me, it's always a mystery to know what's going to irritate my skin, but I'm definitely out there itching and scratching. But the good news is active skin repair always seems to save the day. Active skin repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, making it suitable for use on all skin types, all parts of the body, and even on rosacea, eczema, and acne-prone skin. Here's what I want you to do. Visit ActiveSkinRepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and get 20% off your order when you use code JOYFUL. Again, that's www.ActiveSkinRepair.com. Find out more about the product and get 20% off your order when you use the code JOYFUL. Hello, Joyful Courage community. Oh my goodness, I am so, so excited to welcome you to this week's show. It's a big deal. This episode is episode 100. 100. We've made it. Over the last two years, I've had some incredible guests on the show. People like Dr. Laura Markham and Amy McCready, Ross Green and Rosalind Wiseman. I had people who I look up to like Bonnie Harris, Rebecca Eines, Patty Whipler, Rachel Macy Stafford, Raffi was on the podcast. And today, my guest is another name that you've heard me talk about. I've referenced her work and I am deeply, deeply honored to get to be in conversation with her. So sit back and enjoy and really join me in celebration of what we have created here at the podcast. Thank you so much. I am so in love with this community. And that includes every single one of you listeners. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Joyful Courage Podcast, a place for information and inspiration on the parenting journey. I am your host, Casey O'Rourke, positive discipline trainer and parent coach, and I am thrilled that you are listening in. Be sure to listen after the interview. I have some really special offers and calls to action that I do not want you to miss out on. If you find yourself laughing, taking notes, and or excited about what you hear on the show today, and I'm sure that you will, do me a favor and pay it forward. Share this episode with your friends, family, neighbors, strangers at the gas station. Your sharing is the reason I'm able to show up for you each week, and I am deeply honored to do so. My guest today is Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, co-author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, the Whole Brain Child, and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated in over 20 languages, both of which I mention pretty regularly on the show and in my work with parents. Tina is a psychotherapist and the executive director of the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California, where she offers parenting consultation and provides therapy to children and adolescents. Dr. Bryson keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. She has written for numerous publications. She earned her license in social work and PhD from the University of Southern California, where her research explored attachment science, child-rearing theory, and the emerging field of interpersonal neurobiology. Tina emphasizes that before she's a parenting educator or a researcher, she's a mom. She limits her clinical practice and speaking engagements so that she can spend time with her family alongside her husband. Parenting her three boys is what makes her happiest. Hi, Dr. Bryson. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Casey. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love your work and uh, all the awesome stuff you're doing out there to help support parents. And so it's really fun to get to join with you today. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm so glad that you were a yes. (laughs) (laughs) Will you please share a little bit more about your journey of doing what you do? Yeah, you know, my my plan was to be a high school English teacher, so I got a degree in education and in English and um and while my husband was working on a PhD and was in grad school and we had no money and he was studying all the time, I thought, well, I might as well get a master's degree and so I got a master's in social work and um then planned to be a stay-at-home mom. 
And that was my plan since the time I was, you know, a little girl. All I wanted to do was be a mommy. That was my mm. career goal, um, a good one. And um, I had my uh, first son and I was so happy to stay home with him. And at that time we moved to California. I, we were living in uh, Texas at the time. And I was so happy to move back to California where all my family was. And my plan was to be his mommy full time. And my husband said, um, we need you to work at some point because we live in Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, I had done some victim advocacy work and um, a lot of um, education kinds of things, teaching about domestic violence and that kind of thing. And so I decided, well, maybe I'll be a social work professor then. So I'll get a PhD so I can teach and then still be really with my boys. And um, in the process, I met Dan Siegel, who's my co-author, and um, fell in love with um, attachment science and child rearing theory and all of that and started doing more of what I love, educating people and doing some parenting classes and all of that. And in the meantime, I kept having babies and I kept <laughs> studying with Dan because um, I followed him and started learning about this field of interpersonal neurobiology, which is really foundationally about how relationships um, influence and build the mind and the brain. And so um, long story short, as I was learning, I basically started finding that the science had so much to help um, guide us as parents and understand our children's minds and brains and behaviors and our own in really kind of profound ways. And so I, I went to Dan one day and I said, hey, I've been using this interpersonal neurobiology stuff as a parent um, and here's what I'm doing. And so that's kind of how the whole brain child was born. Um, my boys now are 17, 14, and 10. And um, what I still feel most passionate about is teaching. And mm -hmm. uh, so that original kind of goal to be a, a, a teacher is still what um, really drives me. I, I don't do as much clinical work or parent consultations. I still do some, but um, mostly I'm educating parents and educators and mental health people. And now I do actually a lot of work in the camp world as well, like the youth camp. Oh, awesome. Kind of world, the, you know, child development stuff and totally. really helping them understand that um, behavior uh, may not be what you think it is and mm -hmm. uh, that behavior is communicating some things and that your instincts for how to respond to that behavior um, might not be the best, most effective response and that there are better ways um, that actually make behavior get better more quickly um, and help build the brain at the same time. So it's just really exciting work. I, I feel honored every day to get to do this work because I, I believe in it. I live it. It takes constant practice. And for me, and I think because I get to do what I do, it's constantly kind of on the forefront and reminding me so that it guides my own, continues to guide my own parenting because it is hard work. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> to is. do it well is hard. Yeah. And I love that you're working in the camper world because yeah. even in you my community, here, yeah? I, well, I went to Catalina Island camps. Oh, you did? I oh, did. I, I was a career camper and then yes. right into being a counselor. And there was no training around right. like help you, you know, the teenagers that were running the show. And That's I right. also work, I, you know, I used to work at the YMCA and I've done, I was, um, I, I do some training with them and, um, and it's shown up in my parent community, just the, yeah. you know, these parents that are, are using the tools, many of which come straight from your work, others from positive discipline, they're using these tool with their, tools with their kids and they're shifting their lens around behavior. And then their kids go to camp again. Typically yeah. the typical camp counselor is what, like 19? Yep. And yep, that's right. And the training is, you know, they're much more concerned with physical safety. That's right. Than which they, is important. Which is yeah. absolutely important. <laughs> but it's like there's this disconnect around, yeah. you know, you're misreading this behavior. And because yeah. of that, you're reacting in a way that's actually yeah. not helpful. And so it can be hurtful. It's, it's pretty exciting. You know, over a million kids go to some type of camp in the summer. Some mm -hmm. of those are day camps. Some of them are overnight camps. And so I've actually been partnering with a colleague of mine um, who uh, started a company called Lantern Camps, which kind of lights the way to really good quality camps. And, and Lantern Camps, uh, my 
colleague Michael Thompson and I started doing some little videos and podcasts for camps and all of that. And then I, I've been able to keynote at some of the major camp conferences wow. to get this message out to directors. And I, I do training. In fact, the Catalina Island camps uh, asked me to come and do training for their staff this awesome. summer. I wasn't able to make the dates work, but I'm uh, there. I think more and more the camp community is eager to bring some of that child development stuff. I just got back from Minnesota where I was there. This is my sixth year to spend three days at camp with these 19, 20-year-old camp counselors to prepare them um, for the campers to come um, at a camp called Camp Chippewa for boys in Cass mm-hmm. Lake, Minnesota, where my boys go. Mm-hmm. But you know what I tell these 19, 20-year-old guys um, or girls, the counselors, is pretty much the same message that I tell parents yeah. and that I tell educators because it's based on what we know about the brain. And you know, the the main idea is you don't have to be per. You know, one of the main ideas is you don't have to be perfect. You don't know what you don't have to know what to say. You don't have to know what to do. What you need most to do is to show up and help them feel safe and to say, I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. And even if that's in the middle of some really challenging behavior, the challenging behavior may be communicating that their nervous system is is acting like they're under threat and they're freaking out or they're having anxiety or anger that they don't yet know how to regulate in that moment. Mm-hmm. And they need us to really just show up and say, I'm here with you, that that's one of the most important things we can do. And it builds the brain too, in really yeah. incredible ways. So in your work with parents and teachers and camp counselors, with the people that you speak to, what do you find are some of the common assumptions? Because I think, you know, I think that that's our biggest problem as the adults in the relationship is that we are making assumptions left and right about the All why. The yep. Yeah. So, you know, that's why Dan, in the No Drama Discipline book, Dan and I use the phrase chase the why. And I, one of the things I say a lot when I speak to audiences is that one of the most important things we can bring to discipline or to the whole idea of changing behavior is actually curiosity. Ah, because, yeah. All right. Yeah. So See, people, I know what I'm talking about when I say drop into <laughs> curiosity. Thank you, yes, Tina. Yes. Okay, good. Well, we're <laughs> saying the same thing. And that means that we're you know, that's confirmation yes. on truth. Um, there's a, a colleague of mine um, who um, is up in Oregon who specializes in, uh, with autistic populations. Um, he has a great phrase. She says, turn frustration into fascination. And um, it's this idea that the behaviors that our kids have that drive us crazy, that frustrate us, that worry us the most, that if we can move into, or as you said, drop into curiosity or become fascinated with that behavior, it allows us to override the assumptions. And the assumptions Mm -hmm. are often um, that the child is doing this behavior to to us, Mm -hmm. like it's personal. They're doing it to make us mad or to bother us. Um, another assumption that's really common is that the child actually could choose differently if they wanted to, that mm-hmm. if they, if they tried harder or if they did better, or if they wanted to do better, they cared they more. Had more motivation, exactly yeah. that they could do better. And of course, sometimes kids do stuff to get to us on purpose, of course. Mm-hmm. And of course they sometimes with effort and trying better or whatever, they can do better, but not all the time. And the other main one that I see that is so pervasive among both educators and parents is that when we try and explain a behavior or we're kind of giving an explanation or an attribution about what the behavior is about, we assume that it's about the child's character. So for instance, we might say, um, you know, he's not doing well in school because he's just, he's just lazy mm-hmm. or he just doesn't care or, um, you know, he's just trying to get attention. You know, we do these things that often the word just is in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but we assume it's about the child's character. And even as a trained child development specialist and a, a licensed clinical mental health professional, I don't know what the intervention is for a character flaw. Mm. But what I know is that if we become curious and we go, now, wait a minute, what was this behavior about? What was the child's intention or what was happening in their internal landscape? What we often will get to is that their nervous system was in threat mode or their nervous system was um, moved them to a place where it wasn't a choice. It was it was a reactive kind of choice. And Mm You know, Casey, one of the one of the kind of frameworks that I use that I think is so helpful is to talk about 
when you're in a good state of mind and, you know, Dan and I would use the phrase integrated when you're in a state of integration, um, where you're calm and you're flexible and you can use your full problem solving abilities, that's when your nervous system is actually pretty well balanced in that state. And we call that the green zone. When you're Mm -hmm. in the green zone, you can think clearly, you can make good decisions. You know, your, your behaviors are really choices. You really can choose to do better or, you know, whatever. Um, But if your nervous system starts getting too revved up, you get really angry or really anxious, or you feel really embarrassed or, or, or something kind of sends you into, this is not going so well for me. If that gets intense enough, your nervous system goes into this dialed up response where your heart's beating faster mm-hmm. and your, you know, your, um, your whole nervous system gets into this reactive mode where fight, flight, freeze can come on. We call that the red zone. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, there's also another kind of opposite of that where your nervous system shuts down and you kind of go into what we call the blue zone. And that's where your heart rate actually drops and you get really floppy and you can move into this state. And The idea is that the brain is either in a receptive state Mm -hmm. where it's open and flexible um, or what Dan and I would call a yes brain, Mm -hmm. or the brain is in a reactive state or in a no brain state where you're defensive and fighting and, Mm -hmm. and shut down and rigid and all of these things. So the red and the blue would be a reactive state and the green would be a receptive state. Hey, everybody. Listen, I'm so excited to give you an update on Songfinch. Songfinch delivers. I shared last month that I was going to have them create an original song for Ian, my graduating senior. Well, the song is done and the process of co-creating it with the artist on Songfinch was so cool. I got to provide details and ideas and then the musician of my choice wrote up the lyrics put it to the music that I picked, and the results are so cool. I can't wait to surprise Ian with it. I will be sure to record it and share it with all of you. Songfinch is an innovative service that lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people you love. It's completely unique, personal, and it lasts forever. After moving through their process, you get the final results in four to seven days. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free. So you and the lucky person you gift it to can listen to it anywhere, anytime. Whether your song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, wedding, or anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care. Start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Go to songfinch.com slash joyful and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, which is a $50 value. Again, my URL is songfinch.com slash joyful. Don't forget to share your song with us too. songfinch.com slash joyful. Hey, so I'm so excited. I want to share with you about one of our new sponsors, Starglow Media. They have this amazing show for all of you with younger kids called Mysteries About True Histories. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers and on adventures through time packed with puzzles and hidden equations, histories, and laughs. You all know Alana, our co-founder at Sproutable. She listened to the show with her seven-year-old and loved it. They would pause the show and try to figure out the math problems together, loved learning about different cultures and the histories around the world. The series explores themes like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code breaking, pattern solving, and so much more. Math is geared Math is what they call it. Math is geared towards kids six and over, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. Episodes drop every Thursday, and they're about 15 minutes, perfect length for the car rides, mealtime, break time, bedtime. Each episode is stacked with so much laughter, and your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune into Mysteries About True Histories math with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. We often assume that a child's bad behavior is the child's choice. And Mm -hmm. that's true if they're in the green zone. 
But if they're in the red zone or in the blue zone, it is actually not a choice to do better. Their nervous system has taken over and the fight, flight, freeze stuff comes on. And um, they actually can't learn or think. They can't even access their frontal lobe. And we know that the nervous system actually does this weird thing where it actually changes the um, the ability and the inner ear to even hear human voices very well. So you kind of just oh, shut wow. out the world and you just go into this reactive state. So I think what's really interesting about this is um, that we assume that behavior is always a choice and that's not true. It's often our nervous system that takes over. Mm-hmm. And my whole framework around discipline, and I'm sure this is this is your framework too, is that Behavior communicates what skills haven't yet been built. Mm. Behavior communicate like if you, what I often do with parents in a workshop is I'll have them, I say, I want you to make a list, title your list, problem behaviors or discipline problems and make a list of the two or three things that are the biggest issues around discipline. And then they, I let them do it. And then I ask them to cross out the title discipline problems and retitle the list skills my child needs to learn or what my child needs to be taught. Mm. So, you know, for me, and I can't do it in the moment, oftentimes with my kids, you know, like, let me give an example. So my eighth grader comes to me on Sunday night at 6 p.m. and says, "Uh, mom, can you take me to Michael's craft store? And he's asking me because he has a project due the next morning, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, in that moment, I'm not at all like thinking, oh, he's really communicating. Like in that moment, I'm... (laughs) Off. What mad. are his lacking yeah. skills right now? Yeah, no, I'm not thinking. And the moment I'm like, I'm so mad at him and I'm even cussing inside my head, you know. Um, but a few days later, I thought, you know what? He told me something. He told me he doesn't yet have the ability to delay gratification and say, hey, I'm going to work on my project instead of going and playing football with my buddies. Right. He showed me he doesn't yet have the executive skills consistently right. to plan ahead and think about what materials he needs and what what his mom's schedule might be. Like he doesn't have that yet. So for me, I'm like, okay, he doesn't yet have those skills. So mm-hmm. I, I can't be mad at him for what he, I have not yet taught him or what development hasn't yet unfolded. So my job now is to ask myself, what is it I need him to learn here? Is he developmentally capable of learning that? Yes. And then how can I intentionally work to build those skills? So what that meant was that Friday night or Saturday morning before he went off to do fun things for the weekend, we looked at what he had coming up and we Mm -hmm. made plans together until he could do that on his own. And, you know, sometimes it's not specific skills like that. It's just that we have an unrealistic expectation Mm -hmm. about development, you know? Well, I really appreciate what you said that it's not, and it might not be, that they don't have the skills, it's that they are not, they don't have this the skills in a way that allows them to tap into it consistently. I think consistently. that we yep. adults, like that's one of the places where I think we kind of stir up the mischief is when it's like, what do you mean you haven't mastered that? Right. What do you mean? I just told you, you should, or you handled the bedtime was easy last night. Why? Right. What is your problem? Right. You know, that's, that, that actually brings up another sort of assumption we make, which is that if they can do it some one time, they can always right. do it or that they can do it consistently. And, you know, I actually had this, this moment in my office one time I was working with a couple and they had a five-year-old son who was really dysregulated. I mean, the family was sort of at the, the mercy of his he, he yeah. went red zone all the time, just constant tantruming. He would get aggressive and violent. Mm-hmm. And when we chased the why and peeled back the layers to what this was about and why his nervous system was so reactive, he, this was a boy who actually, in fact, had some sensory challenges that had not yet been identified. And mm-hmm. so that kind of guided our intervention. But when I was having a conversation with the dad, I was explaining to him that his child's reactivity a lot of time was a can't for him, that he, he couldn't help it, that his right. nervous system was in this state of threat. And that when the dad would cont- would fight with him, he would actually pro- send him further into the red zone, right? When the dad would mm-hmm. yell at him and wag his finger in his face. And mm-hmm. I said, you're just communicating more to the nervous system threat. And so he can't move into the green zone. And so... I, the dad was just sitting there and I, you know, I, his body language was just brutal. I could tell he was not buying what I was saying. <laughs> this so, lady. Yeah. He's like, oh gosh, you know? So I looked at him and I said, I didn't want to send him into the red zone. So I was really careful to be playful and soft in my approach. I didn't want him to move to reactivity, <laughs> but I said to him, I'm, I'm wondering, I said, I'm getting the sense from you, which is like such a therapist thing to say. I'm getting the sense from you that you, what I'm saying isn't really resonating. Why don't you argue with me? 
And mm-hmm. he said, I just don't buy this camp thing. I mean, he can handle himself. I, you know, just last week I told him, hey, you can't go to the Dodgers game like I promised. And he handled himself really well. So when I tell him you can't have the blue cup and he loses his mind and starts kicking and screaming and throwing things across the room, like he could do better. He just needs stricter discipline. Mm. And I said to the dad, well, what have you been trying? And he paused and he said, stricter discipline. And like he realized <laughs> in that moment that was not going to be the answer. So I said to the dad, let me ask you something against being really soft in my Mm -hmm. approach. I said, I assume that you are patient and loving with your children most of the time, but that there are times that you're not. There are times you're reactive and you yell and you're impatient. I said, that's how I am. I'm assuming that's how you are too. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I said, what is it that gets in the way for you? What is it that moves you into places where you're impatient or reactive or, you know, whatever? And he said, well, if I'm tired or if I, you know, if I've got stress at work or if my wife and I are fighting. And I said, so you're saying you can be patient and loving. You just decide not to. (laughs) And he kind of like was like, aha. And he kind of laughed. And, you know, the joke I like to tell is I did eventually get paid for that session. So that was good. (laughs) I turned the corner. Um, But he said, he said, okay, I see what you're saying. And I said, just like your behavior isn't consistent all the time, a five-year-old cannot be consistent. And, you know, if you have a kid who is predictably unpredictable in a really, you know, in huge ways where the kid is all over the place, sometimes that's developmentally appropriate. But as our kids get older, there should be less of that. And if it continues, then that's a time where we all might you know, seek out a professional to kind of look to see if there's something like an, like ADHD or a sensory challenge or a learning disability that hasn't been found or those kinds of things. Well, and I think it's really important what you were able to point out to that dad and something that I mentioned um, working with parents as well. You know, I, you know, I am 43 years old and I have 43 years of life experience and lessons and and learning and relationships to get to filter whatever's happening in my world gets filtered right. through all of this experience. You know, when I look at my 14-year-old or my 11-year-old or, you know, if our kids are five or eight or what, or two even, how they have so, they're fil- there's no filter, there's nothing for them to put what's happening for them against right. to make more rational, for lack of a better word, rational is probably not a great word, to make sense of what's happening for them. Yeah. And not to mention that they don't even have a fully developed frontal lobe yet. <laughs> right. That is the part of our brain. You know, we have this thing called the middle prefrontal cortex, and it's right behind your eyebrows and the orbits of your eyes. It's the very last part of the brain to develop. And this is the part of the brain that allows us to feel empathy for other people and be flexible and regulate our own emotions and pause before we react and do all of these, you know, pretty sophisticated things. And so, you know, we have fully developed prefrontal cortices, but our kids do not. Our adolescents for sure don't. And so they're much more likely for that reactive reptilian brain to kind of hijack that part of the brain so that they do act kind of like a a reptile under attack at times, right? They don't (laughs) have that perspective and all of that memory and those experiences. And it's that prefrontal cortex that provides that filter. And they don't even have the architecture to support that fully all the time. Well, and it's not even just, then this is what I love about your work and about what I get to bring to parents, that it's not just our kids' brains that we need to understand, that it's also a deeper awareness about how our adult brains work. For sure. Right? I mean... (laughs) And the red zones are contagious, so our kids go to these reactive places and then we do too, right? Yeah. So what are some tools that you share with parents that you can share with the listeners that help us in our rewiring of our brains so that we yeah. can be be with our children and do better, right? Not perfection, progress, not perfection, people. Exactly. Um, but how can, because like you just said, red zone is contagious. So what can we do to help ourselves when our kids, typical, like typical development or not, are going into the red zone so that yeah. we can show up well for them? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is to be gentle with ourselves because Mm -hmm. the more, the harder we are on ourselves about the ruptures that come up inevitably in parenting. And if we move into these kind of shame spirals about those kinds of things, that actually makes us more reactive over time. Shame actually causes our brains to be less integrated. And so I think the first thing is being kind to ourselves, forgiving ourselves, being gentle with ourselves. 
Um, and, you know, I really love Kristen Neff's work, mm-hmm. N-E-F-F. She does the self-compassion work where she basically, you know, teaches you to be as kind to yourself in your internal voice as you would be to a friend. So to tell yourself, oh, sweetie, you've been having a hard day. Like, let's just take a breath and then we'll sort of see what we can do next. And, you know, let's just move on. You're having a hard day. It's okay. Go do something to take care of yourself. You know, if you can just Mm -hmm. kind of give yourself some self-compassion, that's the first thing. The second thing is to remember that our brains are plastic still, even in our old, old ages here, (laughs) so that it takes a lot of practice. Just like the first time you heard seven times seven is 49. You didn't know that it took repetition, repetition, repetition Mm -hmm. before you knew that it takes a long time. And, you know, just like you said earlier, you know, we say to our kids, like, I've already told you that, why aren't you doing it? I always want to coach a six-year-old to say, well, according to neuroplasticity, it's going to probably take multiple repetition over multiple months before (laughs) I know that. Um, you know, I think anytime we start trying new parenting kinds of things, just being know, knowing that it's going to take a long time of practice to do this differently than we've been doing it. So what I want to share with you now is sort of a, um, probably the tip or the strategy for when our kids are in these reactive states that has been the most successful for the most amount of people. It's awesome. the thing that the most people have come back to me and said, I cannot believe how well that works, how magic it is. Great. So, um, and it's something we can do even when we feel like we want to scream, even when we feel like, because to me, like the counting to 10 thing never worked. Right. Um, We all have different, different ways that we, you know, handle ourselves. But okay, so let me take you back to the same dad and mom that I was talking to where Mm -hmm. the dad was like, you know, so I I said to the dad, um, you know, what happens? So he's demanding, I want the blue cup and he's screaming and yelling. And, you know, how, did, how what is your response typically like? Well, he said, well, I usually scream and yell too. And, um, and I end up, you know, it, it, it ends up going to not very good places, you mm-hmm. know? And I said, like, and he, you know, after I've already told him my duty to report, if he tells me about it, right. <laughs> um, but he says, you know, ultimately I end up screaming at him. I ultimately end up telling him, go to your room. He won't go to his room. So I carry him to his room. I put him in his room. He won't stay in his room. I hold the door. He's screaming Mm. and destroying his room on the other side. And he's like, this happens over and over and over. So I said, now I assume when you're in this moment with your kid, like kids red zone, you're going red zone. I assume when you're yelling at him, you have a really angry look on your face and an aggressive tone of voice and an aggressive posture. And he said, yeah, I'm sure I do. And I said, now let's think about this. Your child is a mammal. Let's think about a different mammal. Let's think about a dog for a moment. And if you were to approach a dog that was in a a red zone state, agitated, fight, flight, freeze state, would you use an aggressive tone of voice and an aggressive body posture with the dog? And he said, no, that'd be really stupid. The dog would bite me. And I said, yeah, that would be dumb. (laughs) What would you do? What would you do if you had an agitated dog um, that you were wanting to kind of interact with, like help get them in the house or get them into a car or something? He said, I guess I'd bend over and I'd put out the back of my hand and I'd say, it's okay, come here. I said, Mm. yeah, so why would you be doing that? And he's like, well, I would want the dog to know that I wasn't a threat. And I said, right. <sighs> so what happens is if you have an aggressive posture, an aggressive tone of voice, you're yelling at your kid, their brain is only hearing threat, 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 and they have no other option except to go into reactive mode, mm-hmm. whether that's shut down blue zone or reactive fight, flight, freeze, red zone. And so I said, you know what I want to do is I want to try an experiment. And it truly in this moment, Casey, was an experiment. I didn't know what was going to happen. But this, is, so so this cool. is the first time I tried this. And I thought about my dog who has a high ACEs score, you know, adverse childhood experience. (laughs) He's traumatized. Yeah, he was a rescue dog. And anytime my kids would fight or even my kids would be, you know, cheering for a game on TV or whatever, he would go hide in the closet. And when we would be, like when we would be like, get outside Jasper, he would put his head down on the ground. And I thought about Jasper. And so I thought, what is the quickest way we could communicate to that lower, the lower structures of the brain, Mm -hmm. no threat? Mm -hmm. What's the quickest way we could do that? So I said to this dad, let's try an experiment. Next time your child rages, starts to have a tantrum, is yelling and whatever, you're going to feel really mad. But I want you to, instead of yelling, I want you to do something different. I want you to sit below eye level, not at eye level, but I want you to get below eye level to your child and sit in a really relaxed posture. So if he's standing, sit on the couch, sit in a chair, even better, sit on the floor, crisscross applesauce in a really relaxed posture. And I want you to stop talking and yelling and 
and lecturing. And I want you to only say two things. So first is get below eye level. Mm -hmm. Second thing is to say something empathetic about the feelings like, oh, buddy, I can tell you're so angry or you're so frustrated. So Mm -hmm. something empathetic, acknowledging his internal feeling. And the third thing is to say, I'm right here with you. Mm. And the dad said, you want me to sit in a submissive posture to my child? Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Thank God spring into summer is my favorite time of year. After turning 50 last September, I've been really working on my physical health and well-being and can honestly say that I am feeling better in my body than I have felt in a very long time. Yes, credit goes to movement and working out, but even more credit goes to how I'm feeding my body. That's why I love Factor. I fuel up with Factor's no prep, no mess meals, 35 different meal choices, and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. I always have a new flavor to explore. It's amazing. You can crush your wellness goals this May, keep time in the kitchen to a minimum, and enjoy effortless support for the lifestyle you want to be living with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust from Factor. Head over to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use the code joyful50 to get 50% off your first First box plus 20% off your next month. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50. Again, that's 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Yes, yes, yes. Join me. Join me in the health revolution and feel really good this summer. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I said, um, I thank goodness for a quick wit in certain moments. I said, um, no, I want you to, to strategically posture your body to downregulate his nervous system. Nice. Well done. <laughs> so I just threw some little science there, right? <laughs> so they left. I didn't think I'd ever see them again. A few weeks later, they come back. And the dad said, I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. I wasn't going to do it. And I said, but you're back. And he said, I'm back because... I have never seen my child calm down like that. I've never (sighs) felt more effective as a parent. He said, and I stayed calmer than I've ever been able to. And so I started sharing it with everybody. And it's the thing I got a, I got an email from a mom a few weeks ago um, with a picture of her three-year-old who was frustrated because the magnets on those little um, trains, he couldn't Mm -hmm. figure out which direction to make them work. And so he started tantruming and threw them across the room. And she said, we had watched one of your videos. And she said, my husband, who is six foot seven, laid down on the floor to get below eye level and it calmed him immediately. Um, But what's interesting about this is when you get below eye level, it tells a mammal, I am not a threat to you. I'm, I'm just here to interact with you. And when this dad was able to sit on the floor, it it was funny because the dad came back. He said, I don't think I did it right. I said, I sat on the floor and I was like, I can tell you're really mad, but I'll sit here. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, that's progress, right? Right. Totally. Um, But what's interesting, and here's a little bit of the science behind that, is the brain is an association machine. So if you are standing up and wagging your finger at someone using an aggressive posture and an aggressive voice, 
there's like a call for a neural response in your brain. It's like anything related to this posture and this tone of voice, please get activated. So Mm -hmm. it basically turns on your fight centers, right? It activates the parts of your brain that are more aggressive. If you sit below eye level and you say something empathetic, it activates the neural networks of things related to being in a relaxed posture and saying something empathetic. And so this is something that even if you feel like screaming at your kids, even if you're so frustrated to force yourself to sit below eye level and to say something nurturing and to say, I'm here with you is so powerful. And this is actually a strategy that we can actually teach our kids too, which is that if they're anxious, if we can have them sit in a floppy noodle posture, Mm -hmm. it will actually tell their nervous system. It'll activate the neural networks of being in a really relaxed state. It will turn, it'll turn their anxiety off. If they are, you know, really, my husband's used this on the, my husband coaches a lot of sport, youth sports and on the little league field, they're down and they're mopey and their shoulders are down. He gets them to start jumping and clapping and moving their bodies. It, it shifts emotions, your body, the way you posture your body can shift emotions. So I think what I, so back to your original question after my really long story is that all good. (laughs) Is that one of the best ways we can, I think one of the tools we can use for our own work is to be gentle with ourselves, to practice this work, and then to find a tool where, you know, we can interact with our children in ways that keep our nervous systems green and keep our kids' nervous systems green. Because the bottom line, Casey, is that the whole point of discipline is to teach and to build skills mm-hmm. so that they become self-disciplined. Yes. So if you're being an effective disciplinarian, and by that I mean teacher, then you should be disciplining less over time because you're you're instead of taking things away, like I'm taking away your toys, what we're thinking about is what can I give my child? What can I build in them? Yeah. And so if we're building them the skills, they should be start to handle themselves better. And, and the elevator speech of my whole discipline approach is that if the whole point of discipline is to teach and to build skills, your child has to be in a receptive state of mind in order to learn. They have to be in a state of mind to learn. Mm-hmm. They have to be in the green zone. And you have to be in a good state of mind to teach. You have to be in the green zone. Yeah. So in the name of discipline and in the, in the name of making my children um, able to learn, I have to get them into the green zone first. And what that usually means is that instead of yelling, spanking, sending them away from me, um, humiliating them, throwing a random consequence at them, which all send our kids further away from the green zone, making it Mm -hmm. less likely they can learn. My goal is to get them into the green so that I can be an effective teacher and hold them accountable and address the behavior, which I have high expectations for. But often the way I get them into the green is through connection, through soothing. Yeah. Saying I'm right here. Love it. So my kids say, I hate you. You're so stupid. So disrespectful, right? Right. My instinct is to say, you can't talk to me like that. Right. Or we don't tell, we don't say that in our house. Which are both really dumb things to say right, because right. we do say it. It just was said. They can <laughs> say it. They just said it. Right. <laughs> right. That's kind right. Of a dumb um, and I don't want my child to speak disrespectfully to me. That is absolutely a behavior I want to address. But if in that moment I say, you can't talk to me like that, I'm totally sending them. I'm basically communicating more threat, making it mm-hmm. less likely they can teach. Right. Instead, if I can say, wow, I can tell that you're so mad at me right now what's going on? I will listen. Mm -hmm. Or I'm here if you want to talk. Or do you want to sit down with me? Or something soothing. And if I can do that, I'm much more quickly going to get them into the green. Because the truth is, for most kids, once they're back in the green, back in their right minds, they often will say, sorry about that. They will often get to that, you know, apology. And what's great is if we can get them to extend with some reflection, like, what was going on for you? I know you don't. And this is a phrase I use all the time. I know, you know, that's not okay. I know, you know, that's not typically how we would talk to each other. What was going on for you? Mm -hmm. What was happening? Where did you feel it in your body? How can you do it differently next time? And after this whole reflective dialogue, if the whole point of discipline is to teach, have I taught? Yes. Have I built skills? Yes. Have I asked them to make things right? That might mean an apology to me or a sibling. Right. Um, and how can you do it differently next time? At the end of that, I'm done. I've done the discipline. And I'm not universally against consequences. 
um, I'm universally against um, reactive consequences. Right. But I, and I think actually consequences make more sense as kids get older, mm-hmm. um, not so much when they're younger. But I think the whole point is to ask, what is it I want my kid to teach? Because I often think that when I throw a consequence out there, well, now I'm taking away your play date or something like that. The kid's attention then goes to how mean I am to do right. that to them. And, and it pulls their attention away from reflecting about what happened and how they can make it right. And I think it also pulls their attention away from that inner feeling of some healthy guilt and conscience that actually changes behavior more than anything we can do to our kids. Well, and I think like talking, we were talking about assumptions. I think too, that parents have this assumption that if I make it hurt, quote, hurt, then the next time they're presented with this situation, they will think to themselves, oh, should I do this? Because last time, but in reality, they're not. They're in the red zone and they're in the red zone. They're not reflecting back to the last time they were in that situation. exactly right. Yeah, we think that the common approach to discipline is typically, what can I do to the child that will be so unpleasant they will make the decision to not do it again, that it won't be worth it to them. But that's not how the brain and the nervous system works. You know, I, I had a client who was telling me that they told their kid, if you splash your sister one more time, Um, I'm going to take away your dessert tonight. So at dinner table, they're all sitting around having dessert. He's not having dessert because he did splash his sister. And, um, you know, the joke I make is as they were all eating dessert and he looked around at all of them, he thought to himself, I really wish I had handled myself better. (laughs) You know, no, he was like, you guys are mean to eat this in front of me. And she was splashing me too. And there's no, you know, it just creates more disconnection, which leads to more behavioral problems. And then you think about how the next day when he's an impulsive, typical four-year-old, he's not not pausing and saying, you know, I'm going to, let's see, what decision do I want to make? It doesn't work that way, right. at least not until they're older, you know? Um, and when we have this negative feeling inside of us, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, which uh, emerges naturally when a child is soothed and back into the green zone and you create space for that, like you really hurt your brother and you pause and you let them feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, that feeling of guilt is really unpleasant and more than anything that will motivate them or, you know, influence how they make decisions when they're able to make decisions the next time. Oh man. I love to listen to you talk about your work. Thank you so much. Well, it's, it's such a shift. I mean, it really, there are you and me and lots of others are more and more talking about new ways of thinking about this job, this really right. important job as disciplinarians. And of course, I mean teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is such a cultural shift, isn't it, Casey? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about not just reacting to kids or using fear or using, um, you know, that whole idea of, you know, just kind of reactive discipline, but instead saying behavior is communication, children learn best when they are in regulated nervous system states, which, you know, and so it's really cool when I went and talked to these camp counselors just last week, what I said to them is, look, your number one job is to get kids into the green zone when they're out. And here are some strategies you can use to do that. I taught them below the eye level. I taught them connect and redirect Mm -hmm. from the whole brain child. Mm -hmm. And I taught them name it to tame it, which Mm -hmm. is where we tell stories about what happens. And I taught them those strategies. And then I said, your number two job this summer is to expand their green zone, make them, you know, make them more resilient, more tolerant, more able to handle adversity. Right. Um, and the truth is, if you have a kid who has a really narrow green zone, they kind of live in the red zone, mm-hmm. reactive or, or live in the blue zone where they're shut down and in collapse. Um, you know, that, you know, if they're two and they lose their mind every time there's a transition, we're not worried. That's typically what a two-year-old does. But if you have a six-year-old or a 10-year-old who, you know, is still having a tantrum every time they have to get into their car seat, then we know that, wow, you know, so when I have families who are wondering, like, is what my kid's doing developmentally appropriate or not? The green zone actually really guides me. So I say to myself, is this kid kind of in toxic stress? You know, so I ask, how frequently does this kid go outside of the green zone? How long do they stay outside of the green zone? When a kid goes into a reactive tantrum state or a grown-up does, it shouldn't take more than 15 to 20 minutes for them to kind of return to calm state. If it takes longer than that, we really want to be curious about if there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. Um, What does it take to get them out of there? You know, if you have a three-year-old, you cut their muffin in half and they lose their mind. They're like, put it back together. (laughs) We're not worried. That's what a three-year-old does. But if you have a 10-year-old who's doing that all the time, that, you know, they, they go outside of the green zone 
too frequently, too uh, over small things. So I kind of want to know what is the duration of outside the green zone? What is the intensity? How far do they go out? Mm -hmm. Um, How frequently does this happen? And that kind of guides me in knowing whether or not, you know, some intervention is is required or whether it's just about um, letting development unfold and coaching the caregivers to um, be the bumpers to kind of keep kids in the green zone through um, soothing and through connection and through problem solving and through playfulness and um, being proactive at times. Parents absolutely have the capacity to dial down their children's reactivity if we use some of our strategies and keep our, our own green zones hardy and healthy, Yeah, uh, which means we need sleep and we need friends and mm-hmm. we need, um, you know, and, and when we find ourselves as parents getting to in really reactive states a lot, um, I think that's really an opportunity to ask or to become curious about that ourselves and to say, yeah. what's that about for me? Um, if we have trauma histories that can, you know, cause us to go outside of our green zones more easily, um, if life is really stressful, but I think, you know, just sort of becoming curious and say, what is it that I need to stay in that state? And that might require professional intervention. It might require just having a girl's night out or going, having some time by yourself or, or those, you know, some simple things, getting to go potty. (laughs) Alone. Yes. Well, so just to wrap up, my last question that I always end with my guests is in the context of all that we've spoken about today, Tina, what does joyful courage mean to you? Mm, that's beautiful. Joyful courage to me means having the courage to reflect on our own areas of growth mm. and also having the courage to trust development to unfold. And I think that oftentimes with our first children, we live in fear. Mm-hmm. We live in fear states a lot. We say to ourselves things like, and the media and the culture stokes those fears, mm-hmm. but we say to ourselves things like, oh, well, if I let this slide or if I let the kid climb into bed with me tonight, you know, then they'll never learn. And eventually if we chase down those fear patterns, you know, our kid is living in a van down by the river at yeah. <laughs> with no friends, you know, with like 50 cats. So I think, you know, joyful courage is about trusting that our child's development will unfold, trusting that we're doing a good enough job and trusting that um, having the courage to really reflect on what, what we would like to change and getting the support that requires to do that. And the thing, Casey, that I, um, that I think that we need to remember a lot as parents is that we don't have to be perfect. Right. And we don't have to, you know, the research shows that even if we are providing our kids with that attuned, secure attachment parenting, even like 30% of the time, that they'll do really well, that their brains will develop optimally and, and all of that. And so I guess the thing I always like to say at the end is that the most important thing, so, you know, Dan and I have a book coming out in January called The Yes Brain, and it's about how we promote, yeah, we're so excited about it. It's about how do we promote this receptive state and all this green zone stuff is in there. And um, we'll be talking about resilience, um, balance, insight, and empathy and how to promote those in ourselves and in our kids. And then we we just, I mean, this is like breaking news. Dan and I (laughs) both signed a contract to write a fourth book called Showing Up. And that book is about the four S's. And the four S's are basically based on this idea that one of the most important things that we can do to help our children um, really in in virtually every area that children are measured in terms of leadership and academic abilities and social and emotional intelligence and all of these areas that we measure, one of the most important things that contributes to that is that kids have had secure attachment with at least one person. Mm -hmm. And the best way I think to talk about secure attachment is that we provide the four S's, not perfectly, but as consistently as we can. And the four S's are that we help the child feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And secure is really about predictably knowing that if I have a need, someone's going to see it and respond yeah. to it. Safe yeah. is like safe to fall apart. 
I don't have to worry about my safety. Like I feel safe in my home and I feel safe emotionally and physically, right? Seen is about someone understands me and sees my heart and my feelings and Mm. my wishes and sees my internal landscape. And that when they respond to me, I know that they see me. I feel seen. Soothed is I fall apart and someone helps me pull it back together and yeah. it's going to be it's it's going to be okay I'm here with you and then like I said that secure is about being pre- that predictably those things will happen and again the research shows if we can just do the four S's about 30% of the time our kids get what they need and so I guess to to wrap things up I think joyful courage is about saying I I can respond to my child with moments where, again, I don't have to know what to say or what to do, but if I help them feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure, and if I make sure I'm feeling that from somebody, we need that too. We need those four S's so that we have the capacity to do it um, for our children. I am so excited about those books. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Where, if the listeners want to find you and follow your work, where's the best place to go? I'm so easy to find. My website is tinabryson.com and that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. Um, and for those uh, who are in the Southern California area, we um, I also have an interdisciplinary clinical practice where I have occupational therapists and educational therapists and mental health and neuropsychological evaluations. And we all work as a team where we wrestle with chasing the why and dropping into curiosity right. together. Um, and that place is called the Center for Connection. And it's a really unique approach to helping families. Um, so um, that website is thecenterforconnection.org. Great. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I'm so glad to to join with you in um, sort of this really meaningful work to help support parents who want to be intentional and want to do the best job they can. And I'm I'm honored to get to talk with you and support your work because you're you're doing that that good work in the world as well. How was that? Oh my gosh. I was basking in the glory that is the knowledge of Tina Bryson, just like you were, listeners. I mean, what I appreciate, I think, the most about Tina and Dr. Siegel's work is the way that they have created language around describing what happens to the brain as it's happening, right? The red zone, the green zone, how to expand the green zone. I loved what Tina talked about as far as getting below eye level and that that picture she painted of what we do when we see a dog that's in the red zone. Oh man, so much to take away and put into practice from that interview. Thank you again. Huge thanks to Tina. It was my honor to have you on the show. I am so excited that she is out in the world doing what she does. Yes. Be sure to bookmark this show so you can come back to it again and again. I know that I will. And I would love to hear what your takeaways are, your takeaways. So the best place to go to share what you're taking away is live in love with joyful courage. Come on over to the Facebook group. It's a great place for discussion. It's safe it's a celebration, it's supportive, it's a huge group of like-minded parents who want nothing more than to be in the work of showing up better for their kids and to be in the work of being a part of a community where that is the vision. So if you haven't joined us over there, please do and let me know what your takeaways are from this amazing conversation. Also, other places to go to get um, in touch with me head over to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and or, right? You can find me in all three places at Joyful Courage. I post um, in all of those social media platforms regularly. I would love for you to find me. Or you can shoot me an email straight to Casey at JoyfulCourage.com. If you find yourself listening to the show and really being committed and excited about the practice, and you're feeling like there's some tension there, there's barriers to really putting what I talk about on the podcast into action, 
consider doing some one-on-one coaching with me. If you're feeling uncomfortable with how things are currently and you intuitively know that there's a better way to be showing up for your kids, if you value personal development, if you embrace the whole positive discipline, positive parenting approach, if you appreciate what feedback and coaching looks like, consider reaching out to me. Let's see if we're a good fit. I would love to work one-on-one with you, all right? So huge love to each and every one of you. Here we are, nearly the middle of July, so crazy. Take care of yourself, make time for special time with each of your kids, but also special time with yourself, all right? Mamas and dads, get out there, get some self-care on, get some soul care on, and I will see you again next week with a solo show. Bye. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.